Hello everyone, it's Voynich time again. This is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So I previously posted a few weeks ago my first commentary about the Voynich Manuscript, the so-called world's most mysterious book. And you can look to that for some basic explanation of what the Voynich Manuscript is and why it's so famous and mysterious. I made the argument that the real overriding mystery and question of the Voynich Manuscript is not what it says, but who created it and when and why, regardless of whether it contains any actual content. I started my analysis from the book as an artifact, its physical makeup and the visual imagery in it. Nonetheless, it is the text, the undeciphered text in the book, that has made it notorious. So in this second half now, I'm going to comment on the text, the so-called Voynich's writing that is found on every page throughout the book, and the different possibilities and clues as to what it might say. And I will talk about the provenance, the documentary record, and the clues that that might contain about where the book originated, who possessed it, and when. And then finally, I'll just point out what I think are the most important unresolved questions that could potentially be pursued to try to narrow down exactly where the Voynich manuscript could plausibly have come from. And I will put forward, finally, my own observations about a possible range of answers as to who might have created the book, why and how, that I think have not been considered. So to begin with, to look at the text, there are writings, whether just a few word labels or whole long paragraphs of text, on every single page of the Voynich manuscript. It adds up to tens of thousands of words, but not a single word has been conclusively translated. There have been small individual free-floating words that some observers have tried to match up with a term in this or that language relating to something in the imagery of the illustrations, but none of them have led to a key for deciphering the rest of the text, and any of them could just be coincidences. So as of now, scholars agree no part of the book has been translated at all. So if that's true, and there is nonetheless so much text in the book, that leads to three basic possibilities that have to be weighed. Just as with the book as a whole and its physical and visual features, there were three possibilities that it could be a genuine 15th century book, it could be a 16th or 17th century book that happens to look older, or it could be a modern hoax. Likewise, when it comes to the text, there are three basic broad possibilities that have been discussed. One is that it's a ciphertext, and this is what observers assumed initially in the first few years after the book came to public notice, that it was a ciphertext, meaning a language put through an encryption process in order to hide its meaning. And this encryption process led to the text that we now see as Voynichese. The second possibility is that it's plain text, but in an unknown language. So plain text in the sense that it has not been deciphered. It is simply a direct one-to-one -one representation 
of some real linguistic text, and rather than being encoded, it's simply text in an unidentified or obscure language. And we say it this way because it certainly cannot be of a known language like Latin or Chinese or Hindi or French because it would have been identified already years ago. So the second possibility is that it's plain text but in an unknown language. And the third is that it's simply meaningless gibberish text or what I'll call pseudotext. So if we try to adjudicate and weigh what is the most likely explanation of what is in Voynichese, is it ciphertext, plain text, or pseudotext, there are some basic features of the text that are fairly easily noted and observed that we have to take into consideration. One is that it features thousands of lines all with no punctuation or diacritics, at least nothing that can be clearly identified as a punctuation or diacritical mark. Rather, the overwhelming bulk of the text is made up of just 23 frequently repeating characters, so that makes it slightly smaller than the Latin alphabet, although with a few flukes, a few very rare characters that appear only occasionally or even just once or twice in the book. And if you count all of those, then it's closer to 30 total characters. So these rare fluke characters probably are not punctuation either because you're not going to use, say, a comma only once in a book. These characters are clearly arranged into words, what appear to be words. And many of these words are very common and repeat frequently. Moreover, if you make a list or a catalog of all the distinct words that appear in the Voynich manuscript, it's clear that they follow a certain structure. They are built around common stems, so you can break the words into frequently repeating syllables. Some of these syllables are stems that can appear on their own as a complete word or can appear as part of a word. And then alongside these stems, there are prefixes and suffixes, which can be clearly discerned into one category or the other. So any Voynich word that you find can be simply a stem or a stem with any number of prefixes and suffixes added on. So based on these basic observations of the apparent structure of Voynichese, does that tell us anything about whether it could be number one, number two, or number three? Well, as for number one, the idea that it's a cipher text, this appears at this point basically impossible because any encryption algorithm that sought to represent a plain text in some actual language would have been broken by now. For decades, leading cryptologists and cryptanalysts worked to try any sort of frequency analysis or structural analysis and it has continually failed. And even Elizabeth Friedman, who, as I mentioned before, was on the team that successfully broke the Japanese Purple Code, a highly valuable, high-stakes you know, military encryption, even she concluded that this sort of decryption on the Voynichese text was bound to fail. And it just at this point seems impossible that there could have been some sort of creative or unique encryption system that was so effective that no one has been able to dismantle it or back engineer it to find a plain text behind the Voynichese text. 
So this is why increasingly in recent years, observers have turned instead to possibility number two, the idea that it is a plain text but in an unknown language and that we simply have not been able to identify what the underlying language is because it is rare and obscure, because it was never written down in any other instance, or because it is long extinct. And in this case, when we look at the structure of Voynich's words, it seems to support this idea that it is a plain text in some unknown language, specifically one that is agglutinative, which is the term for languages that build words by adding prefixes and suffixes onto word stems, like, for example, Turkish. And most Turkic languages are agglutinative with various suffixes adding syntactical and semantic meaning onto word roots. Furthermore, if one looks closer at the statistical features of the language, the sort of basic statistical analysis that cryptologists have done, there are some very simple, straightforward ones that tend to support the idea that Voynich's is a natural language text. Most importantly, Voynich's seems to follow Ziff's law, which is a statistical description of natural language, which was only formulated and described in the 1940s. So it wasn't really even on the the horizon when Voynich brought forward this book in, 19, in the 1910s. Ziff's law describes the distribution of common and rare words in a natural language text. So if you, say, take a, a large body, a library of text in English or Russian or Vietnamese, you can sort out what is the most frequently occurring word, and then the third most the second most, the third most, the fourth most, and so on. And the strong tendency is that there will be one word that clearly stands out as the most common in that language. And in English, for instance, it's the. Then if you look at the second most common word, it tends to be half as common as the most common word. So it drops by 50%. Then the third most frequent word is one-third as common as the most frequent word. The fourth most common word is one-fourth as frequent as the most common word, and so on. And it plays out in a clear logarithmic scale, with words becoming more and more rare as you go through the long tail, until eventually you find words that, of course, only appear once in the entire body of text. So this seems to apply with remarkable consistency to all kinds of of collections of text representing a natural language. So this is one of the factors that's led people to think that this must be some just unidentified and unstudied language, perhaps a very rare or unusual language. Of course, this leads immediately to a problem. How can you possibly verify or match the Voynich text to a real natural language if, by definition, that real natural language has no surviving body of text against which to compare it. It's in itself a kind of unprovable, unverifiable hypothesis. 
But nonetheless, it has led people to try to search for possibilities of some rare uh, language that is referred to somewhere in the documentary record or that is posited to have existed by linguists or that is referred to in the historical record but is now extinct, etc., etc., And not surprisingly, over about the last 15 years, especially in the internet era, many attempts have been put forward to pass off supposed identifications of the Voynich language or even translations of the Voynich text. Different people have claimed that it's written in Turkish or in Proto-Romance, the sort of putative language that preceded the Romance languages, or Hebrew, etc., etc. All of these attempts thus far have been junk. You see articles published from time to time claiming someone has decrypted the Voynich manuscript and come up with a translation. Sometimes they provide a sample passage, sometimes not. All of these are then quickly debunked. They have none of them have been anywhere near successful. And there are certain patterns that you can see in them. If you see a headline in this or that magazine saying Voynich manuscript decoded, there are certain repeating ideas and even phrases that you tend to see in these breathless reports. One of them is that the claimant argues that the text is in some sort of variant form or dialect of a particular language that may or may not be real, that they are simply positing in order to fit retroactively with what you should see in Voynichese. So you'll see phrases like an ancient form of this or that language or a rare dialect of this or that language. And the translation tends to involve a very convoluted process involving a lot of free and arbitrary choices. It's very fungible, and it involves steps that are highly ambiguous that the translator can resolve according to their wishes, such as anagrams or abbreviations. If they do go so far as to provide a translation sample passage, it tends to lead to very incomplete and weird or nonsense translations, which simply, I would say, are, and most observers, serious observers would say, are just failed translations. And just as one little recent example of this, uh, the, a magazine called The Art Newspaper published a, an article last year, last June, saying that a German Egyptologist believes he has cracked the code to the enigmatic 15th century illustrated book. Has Yale's mysterious Voynich manuscript finally been deciphered? And it contains a paragraph quoting this German Egyptologist, saying, quote, The actual translation of the Voynich book will need a couple of years' work. Even if specialists in the Hebrew language, who are well-versed in medieval Hebrew and the terminology of botanical and medical texts, take over the analysis, Hannig writes, the character of the script, the pronunciation which one needs to get used to, the peculiarity of the vocabulary of the period, will cause a lot of trouble, even to a native speaker of Hebrew. End quote. So you can see here all the red flags, right? My translation is really weird. It sounds like nonsense. And he's anticipating that experts in Hebrew are going to look at his work and reject it 
and say, this isn't Hebrew. And he's trying to preempt that by claiming, well, it's this very special, bizarre, variant form of Hebrew that I, as an Egyptologist, somehow have a better grasp of than actual experts in the language. So this is just one little example here of how people can get a little moment of notoriety, 15 minutes of fame in kind of fringe pseudo-intellectual media by claiming that they have a translation, which always then falls flat when experts examine it. These articles, I would say, are mostly clickbait, right? They're thrown up with headlines that hedge, you know, that often end in question marks. Has this German Egyptologist translated the book? And it's burgeoned, I would say, into a kind of cottage industry of articles asking these sort of coy questions and attracting little moments of buzz and attention. So I would say to the general reader and observer, what Voynich obsessives know is that unless you see proof in a clear translation produced through a clear replicatable translation process, then the answer to these, you know, coy question mark headlines like has the Voynich manuscript finally been cracked is always no. It will continue to be no until someone actually comes up with a verifiable translation algorithm. Furthermore, beyond this fact of continuing failure to produce a plausible translation, there are other finer and less obvious statistical features of the Voynich's text that make it seem less likely that it is an actual natural language. For one thing, there are very strange patterns in the distributions of letters and syllables in Voynich's. For instance, some letters appear very often at the beginnings of lines or in the, about the first half of lines of text and then very rarely after. And obviously it's very puzzling why would that happen in a natural language text that a certain letter would drop off in frequency as you go through a line of text, not a sentence, not a paragraph, but line by line. And some are very extreme. Some characters show very extreme patterns in where they do or do not appear. For instance, the single gallows character, which is the very strange character that looks like a large ornate letter P, only appears in the first lines of paragraphs and never in the later lines. So whoever wrote the Voynich text seemed to fit it in in those top lines where there was room for it and then just ignored it afterwards. Further, if you look at whole syllables, certain syllables appear very frequently in certain sections of the text and then disappear abruptly. And some people in doing statistical analysis have shown how certain syllables, like a syllable that might look like AQ, is scattered very frequently all throughout the text until about the middle of a paragraph on the 14th folio, when it suddenly vanishes and becomes very rare from that point onward. This also seems very weird and out of place if we think that Voynichese is a plain text of a natural language. In addition, the words that are made up of these three elements are very regular. There are clear 
rules. What syllables are stems, what ones are prefixes, and what ones are suffixes. And there are no exceptions. There is simply no word anywhere in the book that breaks these rules by, say, having just a prefix and a suffix but no stem, or having a suffix in front of a stem, and so on. That is also weird and unusual for natural language, to have ironclad rules like that, that no word breaks. Then if we try to look beyond the words and try to discern meaning or structure in the phrases or sentences, we get nowhere. There are no discernible patterns like this that we can identify as phrases or syntactical structures. And there's actually a way of describing this mathematically. So linguists sometimes speak of entropy, which is a measure of randomness. So when you apply entropy to a linguistic text, what you're talking about is how much the words appear to follow repeating patterns and how much they seem to be randomly arranged. So if a language like English has low entropy, that means that the words fall into common repeating patterns. And if you are given a piece of text, you can make a strong guess as to what the next word is going to be. So for instance, if you're speaking English or reading an English text, and you encounter a string of words, this morning I woke, you can make a pretty strong guess what the next word is going to be. It's very likely that the next word is going to be up. This morning I woke up. And then you might talk about what you did or the time that you woke up. Those are just words that tend to go together. Languages with higher entropy follow those sort of structures and patterns less frequently, and so you can't make as strong a guess what's coming next. Voynichese has astronomically high entropy to the point that it seems almost random. You know, you know what the vocabulary of words are, and you know what the more common or rare words are, but if you're given a string of text, you really can't make much of a guess what word is going to come next. And the level of entropy really puts it off the charts of known natural language texts. All of these factors that have been uncovered over about the last 50 years or so have led many to think that the Voynich text is neither a cipher text nor a plain text of a natural language, but rather nonsense or gibberish or what I will call pseudotext. And sort of the leading proponent of this argument is a Voynich obsessive named Gordon Rugg, who has become noteworthy really purely through his obsessive analyses of Voynichese. And Gordon Rugg argues that the text was entirely generated algorithmically using simple, low-tech hand methods. So some people who were skeptical of the theory argued that it would have taken too complex a computing machine for someone in the 14 or 1500s to generate these pages and pages of thousands of words of text. But Gordon Rugg argues that, in fact, it can be created by simply arranging various syllables into tables, say, having different columns representing prefix, stem, and suffix syllables, and then running a so-called cardan grill, 
over the table, which is just like a, a card with holes punched out in a random arrangement and then passing this card over your table in order to create various combinations and recombinations of your word elements. So Rugg has demonstrated that this process can lead to a pseudo-random text, which has some of the appearances of a natural language, such as the Ziff's Law pattern. Furthermore, this theory could account for the abrupt changes that we see in Voynichese, these moments of break where certain syllables drop far out of frequency and others arise and become more frequent. It could be that these abrupt changes in the makeup and texture of Voynichese simply arise from moments when the creators switched out tables or grills that they were using in their production of the pseudo-text. So, as I said, this resulting text can approximate Ziff's law. You can end up with certain words appearing very frequently and others dropping off according to that logarithmic scale. But the book existed, we know, before Ziff's law was ever formulated. So even if someone was trying to create a fake text that they could pass off as a real natural language text, say in 1912 or any time prior to 1912, they wouldn't have known that they ought to mimic Ziff's law. So this, I think, leaves an open question. Gordon Rugg has demonstrated that you can create a Cardan grill technique that gives you a Ziff's Law compliant text. But would anyone have done this prior to 1912 accidentally without even knowing that Ziff's Law even existed? So this, I think, leaves one of the great lingering open questions about the Voynich text, which is what is more likely that it is a natural language text that for some reason has all of these bizarre anomalous features, or is it a pseudo text that someone created that just coincidentally or accidentally mimics Ziff's law? And when we consider these different possibilities, is it a real meaningful text that simply hasn't been deciphered, or is it a pseudotext? We have to consider it in light of the strangest and most unusual feature of Voynichese, which is simply the fact that it's written in a unique and unknown alphabet. If someone wanted to create a pseudotext that is in fact gibberish, why would they bother to create a whole new alphabet for it? Why would they not simply use Latin or Greek or Hebrew letters? Letters that were known and that could convey a certain amount of prestige or the appearance of importance, especially Hebrew characters. Why is it that they would instead create this weird coincidence of creating both an uncrackable text and a unique alphabet in which it is written? And I would say that this coincidence tends to point in the other direction and suggests it is more likely that the Voynichese alphabet was created in order to write down, in order to record a unique and unusual language that we simply do not know or have never found, and which would have, naturally, its own distinct sound system, which is not exactly identical to Latin or Greek or Hebrew, but might be close enough to Latin that you could write it in an alphabet fairly similar to the Latin alphabet. 
So I would say that the uniqueness of both the Voynich text itself and the Voynich alphabet in which it is written tends to suggest that there was something significant and important about this text that had to be written in an unusual and inventive way. And this hypothesis that it's simply pseudotext created through a Cardan grill may just be a convenient way to avoid that hard problem and to sort of provide an easy explanation while simply giving up on finding the real explanation. I would say that's very much an open question and there are reasons to go back and forth. But to go back, with that in mind, to go back again to the text's weird statistical properties, these anomalous characteristics such as the very high entropy, the very regular unbroken formula of word construction, these do not necessarily mean that it is meaningless pseudotext. So there may be another option between natural language plain text and gibberish pseudotext, and that is the possibility that it could be a philosophical, so-called philosophical or invented language. And this is not a new idea. It's not my original idea. This is what the Friedman group eventually concluded, although with great uncertainty. Basically, after having exhausted every route towards a possible decryption, they eventually became more and more convinced that Voynichese is a philosophical language. And William Friedman himself actually wrote a secret coded message, which he put forward and shared with the cryptological enthusiast public during his lifetime, but that was only decoded and published after his death in 1970. And this coded message said, quote, The Voynich manuscript was an early attempt to construct an artificial or universal language of the a priori type. And here, a priori means created anew, invented from scratch, not based on a known current language. So that is the sort of wrench in the gears, you could say, that it may be there's this X factor that it is a plain text, but it's not in a language that we can match up by its structure or its syntax with something like Turkish. It's something that was wholly invented from scratch. And notice that an a priori philosophical language is different from, say, Esperanto, which is certainly an invented language, but it's one that is intentionally patterned on known languages like Italian and Spanish. Nonetheless, this goes back and raises the other point that I mentioned before. If it is true that Voynichese is written in an a priori philosophical language, why then would it need a new writing system? Isn't it bizarre that someone would not only create a new fabricated language, but would also give it some sort of unusual combination of sounds that would require a unique alphabet. And I would say that the unusual characters in Voynichese suggest instead that they were recording an unfamiliar sound system that had not been written before. And that, I would say, tends to suggest more likely that it's some foreign language that we don't know and maybe has been lost rather than an invented one. But again, it's a question of probabilities and we're looking at a one-of-a-kind specimen that we can't really weigh and compare against anything else in order to gauge which of these scenarios is most likely. 
if it is an unknown or extinct language, that could possibly account for the variations in syllable occurrence. So if the Voynich scribes invented this alphabet and this writing system for this unique sound system in this unknown language, that could account for the weird shifts in the occurrence of syllables in the text. It could be that as the book was being composed, there were still changing or developing conventions of the use of words and of spelling. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are at least two different scribes who wrote the text. There is one very clear break in the middle of the book where it changes from one handwriting to another. And it may be that there was a group of people who didn't all represent this language in exactly the same way and who either chose to use different syllables as they composed it or chose to use different combinations of letters to spell those syllables. And finally, it could be that this language simply hasn't been identified because it's now extinct. And there are, we know there are a number of languages that have gone extinct over the past 500 years for various reasons because of demographic change, war, migration, disease, colonialism, and so on. And as I pointed out before, the strangest, and I would say the, the most distinctive feature of Voynichis is the so-called gallows characters. The single gallows that looks like a giant letter P, and the much more frequent double gallows, which looks something like the letter pi. And this double gallows resembles features of writing in Nahuatl from Mexico. And many languages from the New World have gone extinct with the demographic collapse, with the spread of Spanish as the imperial language. We know that many indigenous American languages have gone extinct, and some of them were probably forms of Nahuatl or related to Nahuatl. And so in, at least as far as that goes, it seems plausible that maybe the language is Nahuatl or something related to Nahuatl with its own sound system that had to be represented through a revised and adjusted Latin alphabet. So just as far as the text goes, that maybe is the best explanation. Although, again, there are still these problems of why the weird shifts in the frequency of syllables and why the absolute unbroken rules of word construction, which doesn't seem like natural language. These different possibilities still have to be weighed. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to weigh what is more or less plausible in this range of possibilities when the Voynich manuscript is so unique and we can't really do a, we can't really weigh it against a sort of array of different specimens the way you can do when, say, you're trying to attribute a piece of art to Leonardo da Vinci and you have 23 rock-solid attributions to Leonardo against which you can compare it. We just don't have that when it comes to the Voynich manuscript. So if we put that aside for now and say, well, it seems possible that it's maybe a plain text of a natural language, or maybe it is a pseudotext, or maybe it is a plain text of a philosophical language. Can we narrow down by trying to determine from documentary evidence where the book came from? And 
get as close as possible to its origin point. Well, the Voynich manuscript does have something of a paper trail that can, to some degree, tell us with some confidence where this book was located and who possessed it over the past few hundred years. It's not absolute rock-solid certainty, but it does seem that the evidence, the written evidence, does add up and tell us something about where the book came from. So if the book has no title and no known author and not a single word of its text has been translated, the question might arise, well, then how could it possibly ever be matched against any reference in the documentary record? What could any document possibly say about it other than a weird book with undeciphered text? Well, there are a couple of clues that point us to where the book might have been in the 17th century. And those clues, there are two main clues that are found in the papers of Wilfred Voynich himself. So Voynich never said publicly where he got the book. And this sort of secrecy or confidentiality is not totally unusual in the business of rare book dealing. There are people who simply want to keep that trade secret of where they obtained a certain book, or they want to protect the privacy of whoever is selling it because they don't want the public to know that they are relinquishing a book of this nature onto the commercial market. So that in itself is not totally out of the norm. And Voynich simply said that he found it in a castle in southern Europe or on one occasion in a castle in Austria. So he was very cagey about it, but he did share confidential information with his wife, who then later was at liberty to reveal some of this information to others before or after her death. So reportedly, Voynich told his wife, Ethel Voynich, that he obtained the book in the year 1912 from the Jesuit order at a time when the Jesuits were selling off a collection of books from the Villa Mondragone, which is a sort of Renaissance-era castle in the outskirts of Rome, which houses a Jesuit college. Now, that still leaves open, even if we credit Voynich's claim that he obtained the book from the Jesuits at Villa Mondragone. How did it get there, and who created it? Well, that's where these two clues in Voynich's own papers come into play. So the first one is a letter that Voynich said that he found tucked into the book, and the letter itself survived in Voynich's papers. And this letter, which he claimed to have found with the book itself, was penned by a man named Johannes Marcus Marchi, who was an alchemical physician in Prague, in what was then Bohemia. It was written in 1665, and it is addressed to Athanasius Kircher. So Johannes Marcus Marchi is an obscure person who doesn't often come up in the history books, but he was an alchemical physician in Prague. Athanasius Kircher, to whom he wrote the letter, was famous and is still sometimes discussed in histories of the 17th century and early science. And Kircher was a hermetic natural philosopher who claimed 
that he was able to decipher the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. So we're talking about the 1600s, long before the Rosetta Stone, when the ancient Egyptian writing systems were still a mystery, and he falsely claimed that he could decode them. So it's not surprising then that Johannes Marcus Marchi wrote this letter in 1665 to Kircher, in which Marchi said that he was sending to Kircher a strange book full of unreadable hieroglyphics. And he wanted Kircher to reveal to him the contents of this book. And Marchi specifically says in the letter that a friend of his, an unnamed friend of his, had possessed this book previously and had tried for years to decipher it and had only given up his hope of decoding the book upon his death. Furthermore, in the letter, in the same letter, Marchi reports hearsay about where the book came from. So he says in the letter to Kircher that at some time previously, the book had once belonged to the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who reigned as emperor from 1572 to 1608. And Rudolf II is also something of a notorious figure in the early history or prehistory of science. Rudolf was an eccentric emperor who loved alchemy and astrology and all of the occult arts and patronized various occult and esoteric philosophers and collected books and equipment relating to the occult arts. So Marchi says that this book had once belonged to Rudolf II and that Rudolf had bought it from an unknown seller for a price of 600 ducats. So 600 ducats at that time, around 1600 or so, was a pretty good sum of money. That was like a good year's income for a laborer. But it was not a fortune. It was not the equivalent of millions of dollars. It was in the range of thousands of dollars. And we know that Rudolf II bought a number of books relating to alchemy and astrology for about that much money or even sometimes a lot more. So it makes sense that it would have fit into the range of Rudolf's buying habits. Furthermore, this same unnamed informant supposedly told Marchi that the book was originally created by Roger Bacon. And Roger Bacon was a, an English friar in the 1200s who was known for experimenting in optics and other natural arts, and who by this time, the 1600s, was reputed to be an alchemist and sorcerer with various sorts of occult powers. So this part of the letter about where Marchi relates the supposed provenance of the book, the idea that it was bought by Rudolf II for 600 ducats, that it originally came from the hand of Roger Bacon, all of this is hearsay and dubious. And today we can say that the Roger Bacon aspect is definitely false. This book is clearly from no earlier than the early 1400s, and there is no basis at all to think that any of the contents have any connection to Roger Bacon. So that part has been debunked. And the part about Rudolf II seems more plausible, but again, it's hearsay and unverified. So this first clue is the letter from Marchi to Athanasius Kircher from 1665. The second clue is that Voynich recorded finding on the bottom of the first page of the book, 
on the first folio recto, right beneath the cover, he found a faint, barely discernible signature. And that's not an unusual spot where you might find the signature of a previous owner of a book who inscribed it upon obtaining it. And Voynich recorded that he poured an unidentified chemical, probably a photo development chemical, over this signature in order to create a stain to discern and read the signature more clearly. He then took photostats showing this image of the signature, and it fairly clearly says, Jacobus de Tepanech. This piece of writing is clearly not in Voynichese, and it doesn't seem to be in the same handwriting or ink as the Voynichese text, so it makes sense that it was written in by whoever this person was at some later point when they obtained the book. And furthermore, recent uh, chemical and spectral analysis by Macron has verified that those photostat images are accurate and that there is a faintly discernible faded signature on this page that reads Jacobus de Tepanech. So who is this? Well, it clearly refers to Jacobus Horchiki de Tepanech, who was a pharmacist in Prague, who was raised by the Jesuit order in Prague and then came to serve as a pharmacist in the court of Rudolf II. And in the early 1600s, he even served the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II himself. And as a reward for his service, Jacobus Horchiki was given the noble title de Tepanech in 1608. So if the signature is genuine, and it certainly seems to be genuine and does appear to match the other surviving signatures of this pharmacist, then it must have been written sometime after 1608 when Horchiki obtained this noble title, de Tepanech, and before he died in 1622. So this tells us two things. It tells us that the book must have existed and been in the possession of Jacobus Horchiki de Tepanech sometime between 1608 and 1622, and hence, by implication, it must have existed by no later than 1622. So this is the clue that gives us the earliest date of the existence and provenance of the book, that it must have been in Prague in Horchiki de Tepanech's collection by no later than his death in 1622. So if we look at these two clues together, the Tepanech signature and the 1665 Johannes Marcus Marchi letter, these two items both link the book to Prague and to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. So if we want to find any further indications of where it came from, that is where we should be looking, the Rudolf reign period in Prague. But so far, we can't get early, any earlier than that. And it links they link the book to two owners who are of unclear relation or connection to one another, Tepanech in the early 1600s and Marchi in the 1660s. So on the basis of these clues from Voynich's own papers, Voynich obsessives, in particular the engineer René Zandbergen, have gone into the archives in both Rome and Prague to search for further clues from the social and intellectual network of Tepanech and Marchi 
to see if anything further can be determined about who had the book, what they knew about it, or where it came from. And these searchers, Renate Zahnbergen and others, have been able to find further letters and correspondence in the archives in Prague and Rome that discuss a strange, undeciphered herbal book, which at least in a loose, broad way, seem to match the Voynich manuscript. And on the basis of these further clues, they have been able to identify with some confidence the unknown, unnamed friend of Johannes Marcus Marchi, who owned it before Marchi did. And it seems that this man was a legal scribe and amateur alchemist named George Baresh, who was a close friend of Johannes Marcus Marchi. So Baresh at least fills in one element in the blank unknown space between Tepenech in the early 1600s and Marchi in 1665. And on the basis of these clues, we can outline a rough chronology of where the book was and what happened to it. So Tepenech, as I said, died in 1622. And after that, somehow the book passed into the hands of George Baresh, maybe because of Baresh's particular interest in alchemy. In 1637, Baresh's friend, the Jesuit mathematician named Theodore Moretus, also became interested in the book and observed it in Baresh's collection. And Moretus sent a letter to Athanasius Kircher in Rome, along with copies, handmade copies of pages of the text from Baresh. So it seems what we can reconstruct is that Moretus saw the book, was interested in deciphering it. Baresh made copies of passages of text from it, and then Moretus combined these together with his own cover letter and sent them to Kircher, asking Kircher to produce a translation. Shortly after, Kircher wrote back. He responded to Moretus and wrote a letter replying and referring to the passages as, quote, mysterious steganography, which means uh, coded writing. And Kircher argued that this text, although it was mysterious, was solvable, but that he simply wasn't going to bother to do it because he didn't have the time, which is, you know, a, a classic Kircher response, reminiscent of any uh, shyster or anyone who oversells their abilities. He basically says, oh, yes, of course, I could translate that for you, but I have more important things to do, so I'm not going to bother. Following that passage in which he refers to the mysterious steganography, Kircher then also adds another remark. So in his letter back to Moretus, he refers to a, quote, sheet with strange writing to which he had compared this mysterious steganography that Moretus sent to him. So he says in this letter back to Moretus, he says, quote, Finally, I can let you know that the other sheet, which appeared to be written in the same unknown script, is printed in the Illyrian language, in the script commonly called St. Jerome's. And they use this same script here in Rome to print missals and other holy books in the Illyrian language. So it's clear that here, Kircher is referring to the so-called Glagolitic script, which is a special alphabet and form of writing that was used in the Renaissance era 
to write Slavic languages, which would include Illyrian, which is probably basically close to what we would today call Serbo-Croatian, a Slavic language. So Kircher, Hearly Clear, is drawing a comparison between glagolitic script and the so-called mysterious steganography that Moretus sent to him. And he's simply pointing out that they, in fact, are not the same. So hence, putting together this letter with the other clues that we already have from Voynich's papers, it does look as if the book that he's talking about in this correspondence with Moretus is the Voynich manuscript. There is no definite proof of that, but it seems there are certain things we can discern from this correspondence from the late 1630s. The book that they're talking about, firstly, is located in Prague. It's in the hands of George Barish, who was a known close friend of Johannes Marcus Marchi. It's written in mysterious, undeciphered writing, which people suspect that Kircher can crack. And it in some way resembles the glagolitic script, which, if you look at it, certainly does look fairly similar to Voynich's. So all in all, it looks overwhelmingly likely that the book referred to in this correspondence with Kircher is the same book that Marchi then talks about in his 1665 letter. So this exchange took place in 1637 to 38. Later in 1639, it seems that George Barash was getting impatient. So remember, Barash had the book in his possession. Moretus wrote about it to Kircher. By 1639, Barash is becoming impatient, and he writes himself directly to Athanasius Kircher, asking again for a translation and offering to send this book directly to Kircher. And he says in this letter of 1639, he says, quote, now, since there was in my library, uselessly taking up space, a certain riddle of the Sphinx, a piece of writing in unknown characters, I thought it would not be out of place to send the puzzle to the Oedipus of Egypt to be solved. So you might notice here he's making a reference to the myth of Oedipus solving the riddle of the Sphinx in order to enter into Thebes. And he's saying, this uh, book is a riddle. You are like Oedipus. You ought to be able. You're the Oedipus of Egypt. You have solved the Egyptian hieroglyphs. If you can really put your money where your mouth is, you should be able to solve this book as well. And then further, he uses more kind of idealistic arguments to persuade Kircher to take up this work of decipherment. And so he goes on to say, quote, from the pictures of herbs, of which there are a great many in the Codex, and of varied images, stars, and other things bearing the appearance of chemical symbolism, it is my guess that the whole thing is medical, the most beneficent branch of learning for the human race apart from the salvation of souls. So here we get further clues about this mystery book that Baresh claims to have and that he wants Kircher to solve. It contains many pictures of herbs. It's a codex, meaning a handwritten book bound together by hand. 
and that it features stars and other things that seem reminiscent of alchemical symbolism. So in all of these ways, the broad, salient characteristics that George Barash points out certainly seem to match the Voynich manuscript. And most scholars and Voynich obsessives agree that this passage in this 1639 letter to Kircher is probably the earliest known description yet found of the Voynich manuscript. So that only takes us to 1639. What happened after that? Well, as far as we can see in all the surviving letter books and, and libraries, it seems that Kircher never responded. In 1662, George Barish died, and he left his possessions to Johannes Marcus Marchi. So again, it's overwhelmingly likely that this book that Barish possessed passed into the hands of Marchi. In 1665, as I referred to before, Marchi wrote again to Athanasius Kircher, and this time he didn't wait for any response, but he sent the book with the letter to Kircher. And we know that this happened because in the following two years, in 1666 and 67, Marchi's friend named Kinner wrote twice to Athanasius Kircher, again asking Kircher to work on the book. And he confirms in these letters, Kinner confirms that the book had been taken from Prague to Rome by an important personage, by the head of the Jesuit province of Bohemia. So it had been taken in very trusted hands to Rome and that letters had been sent back confirming that the book had been delivered into the hands of Kircher. So if, again, if these letters are accurate, from 1666 and 67. By that time, the book was in Kircher's hands. And it seems that these fellows back in Prague are becoming more and more frustrated with Kircher for ignoring them. This ought to be exactly the sort of puzzle that Kircher would want to tackle. But Kircher made no response, and again, this is not surprising since Kircher was, in many respects, a shyster who falsely claimed to be able to translate hieroglyphics. If he ever tried to make a translation, he probably found that it was too difficult to come up with something plausible. Perhaps when there's just a short inscription or even a short passage on an obelisk or an Egyptian stela, you can come up with something that looks close enough to what the text might say. But this was too difficult when it came to an entire book full of hundreds of pages of mysterious text. How could you come up with a translation that could then be checked and replicated by somebody else. So he probably found this was too much of a challenge and he just ignored it. Kircher then died in 1680, just a few years later. And Kircher left most of his books and other possessions to the Jesuit order. He had no progeny. Over the years, in the 1700s and the 1800s, the Jesuits went through many of the books in their library and disbound and rebound them in order to preserve them. They were suffering from problems like bookworms. And so it makes sense this might be the time when this book was disbound and rebound. Then in the late 1800s, after the unification of Italy, many of the Jesuits' books were hidden or moved around to various different locations around Rome and even to other countries because the new kingdom of Italy was trying to confiscate all of the possessions of the Jesuit order. 
And as a result, many of the records of exactly what books they owned and where they were located were lost or destroyed. So we have a gap here where we don't know what became of this mysterious book that was passed from Marchi to Kirscher in 1665. However, if we go to much later in time, after this crisis with the Kingdom of Italy was dying down after 1900, a record does appear. In 1903, the Jesuit order was preparing to sell off valuable rare old books to the Vatican which is the sort of thing that an order like the Jesuits might often do if, they have, if they're running out of money or they have declining numbers using the library. They will sell things off, and the Vatican had enormous resources and a gigantic uh, library and museum complex. So in 1903, the Jesuits made an inventory of a specific selection of old books that they were prepared to possibly sell to the Vatican in the Villa Mondragone, this castle on the outskirts of Rome belonging to the Jesuit order. All of the books in this catalog are identified by their title and author, except for one. In this catalog, there is one book that is identified simply as, quote, miscellaneous Codex on Vellum, 15th century. This sale, this proposed sale of this selection of books from the Jesuit order to the Vatican was caught up in bureaucratic red tape and negotiation. You know, the Catholic Church is very good at complicated bureaucratic rigmarole. And it was held up for several years until 1912. And in that year, the sale of over 300 books was completed. But before it was actually completed, before the full collection was transferred to the Vatican Library, Wilfred Voynich was able to finagle his way in, and using inside connections and persuasion and maybe some bribes, he was able to look through the collection and pick out interesting or valuable volumes, obtain them at his own negotiated price, and then subsequently present most of these books to the public and sell them on the market for a large profit. So we know that Voynich definitely did obtain some of these books from this catalog and turn around and then sell them on the rare book market. However, what is this unnamed, untitled, miscellaneous 15th century codex? Where did it come from and where did it end up? It doesn't seem that it went into the Vatican collection. It can't be matched up with any particular volume that eventually completed this transfer to the Vatican library. And so hence it stands to reason it could have been one of the books that Voynich chose to acquire for himself from the Villa Mondragone and then present and try to sell to the public. And René Zahnbergen has argued that the Voynich manuscript was part of this cache that Voynich obtained and that it can be identified with the untitled miscellaneous entry in the 1903 catalog. And if we do match these things up, which seems to make sense, you have a catalog entry that can't be identified with any real specific book, and then you have a book 
in Voynich's possession that can't be matched up to a provenance and a paper trail. If we identify them, that would tend to make sense that this vague catalog entry is referring to the book that we now know as the Voynich Manuscript, and that that means that it therefore existed at least as early as 1903, and that it was at that point not yet in Voynich's possession. It was in the Villa Mondragone, and if it was there, it would also make sense that it came from the collection of Athanasius Kircher, and that it can be further identified with this unknown, untitled, undeciphered book discussed in the letters of George Baresh, Moretus, Athanasius Kircher, and Johannes Marcus Marchi in Prague. So all in all, this seems to make sense that we can trace the existence of an unidentified, mysterious, undeciphered book from Tepenech to Baresh to Marchi to Kircher to the Jesuit order and then to Wilfred Voynich in 1912. Nonetheless, some still contend that this is all somehow faked. So there are still adherents to the hoax theory who argue that the Tepenech signature was faked, presumably by Wilfred Voynich. The 1665 letter from Marchi to Kircher is either a fake or was stolen and is referring to some other mysterious undeciphered book that isn't the Voynich manuscript. The letters between Baresh, Moretus, and Kinner in Prague are all actually referring to this other putative book of unknown nature and that has never been found, and that somehow Wilfred Voynich knew about the existence of these letters. He had gone through these archives in Prague and Rome, found these letters referring to a mysterious book, and then forged a book to match up with or fit the description in those letters, anticipating that somehow in future archivists or hobbyists would find those letters and match them to the Voynich. Very clever. And they further argue that this 1903 catalog entry is just referring to some other unknown, unidentified book whose fate and whereabouts are also unknown, and that it's merely coincidental that this other unknown book in the 1903 Villa Mondragone catalog just happened to be a 15th century codex on vellum. So I think that when you factor in this documentary paper trail that seems by the simplest explanation to be all referring to the same book, the book we now call the Voynich Manuscript, it shows how if you're going to continue to claim that the book is a modern hoax from sometime later than 1800, your theory has to get more and more convoluted in order to explain away all of the mounting evidence. And I would say that with all of this laid out on the table, all in all, at this point, continuing to claim that it's a modern hoax really now is an implausible conspiracy theory. And conspiracies do happen Hoaxes and fakes do certainly happen, but at this point it is just untenably implausible that this is all an elaborately, carefully planned and executed hoax. And part of why it's implausible is that it would have required incredible amounts of chemical research, historical and documentary research, many layers of elaborate and meticulous fakery without a single false step giving away the hoax of it. 
and without a clear motive. There are reasons why one might fake a book by someone famous, like, say, for instance, Roger Bacon, because that makes it saleable. That's an immediate attention grabber. The Voynich Manuscript doesn't have anything like that. The only thing that's given it notoriety is the undeciphered text, but it's very open to question is undeciphered text, does that have anywhere near the kind of commercial value of text that links a book to a famous place or person or event, like, say, a lost notebook of Leonardo da Vinci, which would be worth far more immediately on the market than a weird, undeciphered, but otherwise just sort of odd and crude alchemical herbal from the 15th century. So if the goal was to create something of monetary value, Voynich failed. And we know from Voynich's own behavior that he held out for money that he never obtained for this book because he thought, by all indications and by all clues from his behavior, he truly thought that someone was going to decipher it and that it would be linked to Roger Bacon and that would make him a lot of money. But that never happened. So in all of these ways, it doesn't fit the pattern of a hoax. It has no giveaways that prove it to be modern, and it has no big-ticket selling point. So all of this, I would say, shows that if one clings to the hoax idea, it really is avoiding the much simpler explanation which Occam's razor favors, which is that the evidence is what it seems to be. The tangible and consistent evidence points to this book existing by no later than 1622, by which point Jacobus Horchiki de Tepenech possessed it and wrote his signature in it, and that it must have been made at some point between the early 1400s, when the vellum was created, and the early 1600s, when it was in Tepenech's hands in Prague. So let's say that all in all, we can basically rule out the hoax hypothesis as impossibly unlikely at this point. What else can we conclude? So we can say that it was produced sometime between the 15th and 17th centuries, and that it, if we have to put a location on it, northeastern Italy seems like your best guess, although it certainly existed in Prague, by no later than the 1600s. What then can we say? Can we get closer to an actual explanation, where it was produced, and who created it and why? Which, as I've said, is really the great puzzle. So as I've said before, the strange features of the book tend to point towards <clears throat> two possibilities that appear to be basically mutually exclusive. One is that the book is genuinely from the 15th century, from northeastern Italy, that it is an alchemical herbal created by a secretive group with a specific interest in fertility, possibly a shamanic group, a group of all or predominantly women, who wanted to create a kind of repository of their special and hidden knowledge and that hence any apparent similarities to American materials like plants or animals from the New World are just accidental or coincidental. 
The second possibility is that the book is from later, that it's a 16th or early 17th century book that is, in fact, drawing upon American examples, such as particularly Mexican codices like the Codex Osuna, and that the book either accidentally or intentionally was made to look older, perhaps because the creators wanted to give it an air of importance in antiquity, maybe even specifically by claiming that the book contained American knowledge from before Columbus. So these seem to be two possibilities that are separated by different explanations of how the unusual features of the book came about. Either it is genuinely old, but just has accidentally or coincidentally American-looking features, or that it is later, that it is later, and that it either accidentally or intentionally uses old materials and imagery. So either of these explanations taken on its own seems somewhat unlikely and strange, certainly, but neither one is completely impossible. It should be somewhere within the realm of possibility. And the second explanation requires less reference to bizarre coincidences. And in that way, you could say that it's a little bit more likely. And maybe our best guess is that it was made in the 1500s to early 1600s, that it was archaized, made to look old, it uses some American material in order to seem more important. And if this is the case, if it is a late Renaissance era fake, then it seems likely that it was produced maybe in Prague or by someone with close connections to the Holy Roman Imperial Court of Rudolf II in Prague, very likely with Rudolf II in mind as a buyer. So it was a clever, unusual, and sophisticated fake aimed at the mark of Rudolf II. That seems like one distinct possibility to have in mind. And if we want new leads of where this might have come from specifically, then we should be looking at someone either in Prague or someone in northeastern Italy with contacts or connections in Prague who might have been a faker or a fabricator, who could have had the, the skill and the temerity to make a fake with the hope of getting some ducats from Rudolf II. The other possibility, just to consider the, the, the first possibility again, that it's a 15th century secretive fertility group that wanted to record their special knowledge. Well, in that case, the major question un, left unanswered is, well, then how believable is it that it would have these plants and animals that seem to match up to American examples? So, in sum, the Voynich Manuscript is an extreme outlier. It is unique in terms of the large amount of written material that no one has been able to decode, trace, or even account for plausibly as a hoax. But nonetheless, it is not completely unaccountable. It doesn't run against the known accepted laws of physics and metaphysics. It does have similarities to other known artifacts from the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance that give some clues and indications and that could 
conceivably lead towards an eventual plausible explanation of where it came from. And so what this book reveals is that in the course of human life and activities, there will be occasional black swans, very unusual events and unusual artifacts that come about according to the same processes as other normal artifacts that are not impossible but are just extremely rare and unusual. And they might upset one's normal assumptions and understanding of how the world works and of how things like books are created. And when those come up, because they're so challenging and so strange and hard to explain, it can be tempting to leap towards some extreme explanation, such as aliens or hoax, when in fact what happens is that in a long while, over the course of many centuries of searching through old libraries and archives, once in a while a Voynich-level anomaly will appear. So maybe every century or two, we should expect to see another Voynich-type artifact. It just happens that this is the one that we're grappling with right now. And just to review, what are the important unresolved questions that would have to be investigated somehow in order to pin down the best explanation for the Voynich manuscript? There are various points that are not matters of fact in the sense of recorded documentary evidence, but that instead are questions of probability and plausibility that we can't really resolve with the knowledge we have now because objects like the Voynich manuscript are so unusual and so out of the norm. There are questions that we have to weigh, dilemmas of what is more or less historically plausible. One is about the text. As I said, the Voynich's text does follow Ziff's law, and we have seen that it is possible to create a simple low-tech mechanism like a Cardan grill that can produce a Ziff-compliant text. But the question is, is it really believable that someone before 1912 would have done that? If they didn't know about the existence of such a thing as Ziff's law, would they have gone through a process of creating a gibberish pseudotext that happens to follow Ziff's law? And this is a que one question that I think is unresolved and can really only be resolved through a kind of elaborate experiment of simply giving various people, in a blind way, giving people the task of generating pseudotexts using the sort of technology that was available before 1912, seeing what they come up with and seeing whether it follows the sort of statistical profile that we see in the Voynich manuscript or not. That might be a level of work that simply no one has done, which could end up simply demonstrating that it is very plausible, that Voynich is a pseudo-text, and that's not a very exciting or profitable result. So maybe no one has put in the time and effort into doing that kind of an experiment. But it's the sort of thing that I think we have to do in order to test the limits of plausibility and probability. A second one is the likelihood that a 15th century book would have contained a number of plant and animal images that seem uncannily close 
to New World specimens. If we suppose we're not going to posit some sort of pre-Columbian uh, contact and exchange between Europe and America, which would raise all kinds of gigantic historical and ecological implications, we have to ask, is it possible that someone could have produced a book in the 15th century that looks like it's from the 15th century on 15th century vellum, and it's just a coincidence or an accident that many of the images in it look like things you would see in America and look even close to specific images in 16th century Mexican codices. I don't think that there's any way to adjudicate this, again, unless by going through a kind of experiment and plowing through as many examples you can find of 15th century pre-Columbian books with images of plants and animals and asking a blind, unbiased audience, can you identify these? How close do they look to these American specimens? And it may be that if you do that, you're going to find that medieval books are just replete with things that you can say, you can argue, look like a plant or animal from Mexico or Brazil. But it's all just coincidence, and it's all just this human tendency that I've discussed before to look for patterns where there aren't any, where in fact there's just accident and coincidence. So that's the second question of plausibility. And then the third one is, again, to give the, the hoax hypothesis its full due. Let's say it's still possible in principle that maybe this was all an elaborate hoax and that somehow Voynich or his co-conspirators managed to create a fake book with no smoking gun to give it away as post-dating 1800. In this case, again, it is metaphysically possible that such a hoax could be pulled off. It's just a question of is it really, how plausible is it, how possible is it to do that, and that none, none of these armies of Voynich obsessives through the decades ever would have found any definitive marker to show that the book is from later than 1622. Well, that, again probably can only be resolved experimentally. We know that there are many hoaxes, and many of those hoaxes have been revealed. Something has been shown to be fake about the ink, or the paper or parchment, or the imagery, or a word or a phrase. Something made it possible to debunk the hoax. But we don't know how many successful hoaxes there are that have been successfully passed off as something they aren't. It doesn't seem like this is the sort of thing anyone would hoax, but presumably there have been successful hoaxes that have uh, been able to slip under the radar. So the question is, if we have something like the Voynich and we don't see anything to identify it as a hoax, how possible is it that it still is one anyway? Well, probably once again, you'd have to do some sort of experiment. You'd have to task people with creating a weird, unusual book with pseudotext and with fake illustrations and diagrams and try to get it passed off to book experts and historians and archaeologists and see if you can manage to convince them. And then if you do, reveal that you've achieved an experimental result. It's the sort of thing that those, uh, you know, the SoCal Squared hoaxers did when they sent fake academic papers to various journals and got some of them published. 
you'd have to do a sort of experimental operation like that in order to determine how plausible or implausible it is that a book that has been so thoroughly examined as the Voynich is a modern fake. So those, I think, are the open questions that need to be pursued. Now, as for what would be my best guess, what, what would I say is the most believable explanation that accounts for all of the weird, unusual features of the Voynich manuscript? I wouldn't put any great confidence behind this guess, but I would say that it's probably better than any other single specific explanation that's been advanced. So it may not be over 50% probability in my estimation, but maybe it's a good 30%. Well, in order to explain what I would advance as my best guess, we have to consider that there's a kind of underlying assumption in the entire debate about the Voynich manuscript and these different competing theories. And as I said, among Voynich obsessives, the debate tends to hinge on this question of real versus fake. That's a sort of central defining question, although the fake side is more and more losing uh, <laughs> persuasiveness. Well, maybe we have to divide the question here and say maybe the book isn't just real or just fake. Maybe the answer is more complex than that. So as I've pointed out, this book is multi-layered, and there's a lot more to it than just the undeciphered text. That's what's made it notorious, but that's only one aspect. There are different features of the book, physical, visual, and textual, which contain different sorts of clues that point in different directions and may sometimes seem contradictory or incompatible. Well, what if we divide the question and say, well, the book isn't just genuine or fake. Maybe certain aspects of the book, like the visual material, seem to be genuine. They seem to follow certain patterns and themes. They were created very meticulously. They, by all indications, seem to be meaningful and genuine to the purported time period, which is the 15th century. On the other hand, there are various aspects of the text that make it seem fake, like it must be pseudotext, the structures of words, the occurrence of letters and syllables, and just the fact that nobody has deciphered it or plausibly matched it to any language. So the visual clues and the textual clues seem to be pointing in different directions. Well, this, I would say, raises the question, is it possible that the book contains real images, in the sense images that represent genuinely, sincerely held ideas and knowledge that the creators of the book really wanted to represent and record, next to pseudo-text? Now, this may seem really bizarre to us, especially the audience discussing the Voynich manuscript today, because to us, the point of a book is the text, and the illustrations are simply there as aids or accompaniments to the text. And of course, that's what we think, because we are literate. We read and write, and books are, are vehicles for the delivery of text, whereas we get our visuals from photographs, movies, paintings, and so on. So we think of illustrations of books as just kind of decoration. 
But as I've said before, if you look at the Voynich manuscript, and especially at these very exceptional, unusual aspects of the book, like the Rosettes page, it's clear that a great amount of work and thought was put into the images. The text, by comparison, may or may not contain any meaning whatsoever. So I would posit the possibility that maybe this is a book that was intended primarily as a visual manual and aid memoir, and the text was added in for some other secondary reason, but doesn't actually contain important information, or maybe doesn't contain any information at all. Maybe is just fake gibberish text. Well, that may sound weird or far-fetched. Why would that be? Why would someone create a book with real images and fake text? Well, for one thing, the text may be what gives it the appearance of importance. It Maybe text can be seen as having a kind of talismanic quality, conferring a special power or prestige to a book, even if it doesn't really say anything. And we have to consider, as I said before, the visual material tends to suggest that it was created by a kind of secretive, idiosyncratic, shamanic group of all or predominantly women in late medieval or early Renaissance Italy. And we know from the documentary record that groups like that did exist. None of them that we know of can necessarily be matched right up directly to the Voynich manuscript, but that kind of social milieu did exist in places like Friuli and the Veneto and Milan, which is exactly the sort of place where we would expect to find the origin of this book. Now, if we suppose that it was one of these groups composed entirely or largely of women that created the book, we have to remember that the majority of people in Italy at this time were illiterate, and particularly most women, even many women of the well-to-do classes, were illiterate. Literacy was far from universal. So this raises the question, if there were women who had some special knowledge that they wanted to record, it makes sense that the most important attention and work would have gone into the visual material, and that the book that they created might have served as a kind of visual instruction manual and aid memoir. And we know that this sort of thing happened. We have, for instance, the, the handbook and sketchbook of an otherwise mysterious individual in medieval France named Viard de Honnecourt, who made various drawings about architecture and building and architectural decoration, who may or may not have himself been a stonemason or a builder. And the current theory and interpretation is that this book, which is rich in drawings and diagrams, but very little text, that it was intended as a sort of accompaniment to instruction in the training of builders and stone carvers, who, again, were mostly illiterate. So if we suppose that perhaps the Voynich manuscript is such a book, that it's recording medicinal and herbal and some kind of alchemical knowledge among a group of people who were largely illiterate, it makes sense that most of the work and thought would have gone into the visuals and the text would have been comparatively less important. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that therefore you would create pseudo-text or gibberish text, right? That still is bizarre and, and unusual, but 
I would say it's not inconceivable that that might be what someone would do, that they would say, well, rather than put in real labels and real textual information that then reveals our knowledge, should we uh, lose the book or sell the book or gift the book to someone else outside the group, instead we'll just put in pseudotext to sort of fill out the appearance, the, the accoutrements of a real herbal or al alchemical book even though we don't really care what the text says, and hence they simply generated pseudotext through this cardan grill method. So that is just a possibility I would float. I would say that, in my opinion, it accounts for the various strange aspects and features and patterns in the book the best that I can think of, but obviously it is up to others to judge whether that is plausible, whether you can actually picture someone filling out this a tremendous amount of text in the book while simply trying to give it the appearance of a legitimate book and not actually encoding any real knowledge and not trying to make a saleable, you know, commercially saleable hoax, which is what the modern hoax theory posits. So Again, I would say it's a very difficult enigma, it's unusual, it's exceptional, but it is not beyond the realm of possibility that there could be an explanation, and that maybe even if we follow these lines of argument, based on the full aspects, the full range of clues in the book, we might be able to zero in on a more precise origin of who created this book and why. Thank you. So thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear all of my lectures, including my next Myth of the Month, please go to my Patreon page and support at whatever level you can, even if it's just a dollar. 